0: All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor even to gather together as family in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for the tie that binds us all together. That is your love. We love because you first loved us. Thank you for sharing that with us in time, Father, and thank you for encouraging us through it, for revealing your grace to us, each of us as individuals and as a congregation, day in and day out, from faith to faith, Father. What a wonderful grace gift all of this has been. May we continue to be encouraged by it, to encourage each other as long as it's called today. Father, we especially pray for at this moment those in our congregation that cannot be with us, that they too be encouraged, even though they're not with us physically, but in the Spirit, by your Spirit, let them know that we're praying for them, that we're thinking about them, and that we long to have them back in fellowship with us personally. We pray also for those, Father, that are lost in this world, that we just be given an opportunity to evangelize them, that you lay them low, you bring them to a place that really leaves them relegated to nothing but turning to your son. We pray that they do just that in humility so that you can save them. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality we do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message may it be edifying for our souls may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives we ask this in jesus christ's precious name by the power of the spirit we do pray amen Again, this morning's message title obviously is a continuation, part 50 of Why the Apostles So Encouraging by Grace They Were Prepared. Let's begin with a a quick review of our lesson from Thursday. Go to 2 Corinthians 12.9. 2 Corinthians 12.9. This may seem like a random thought, but I'll share it with you. Uh, Second Corinthians twelve nine. while you're turning um, I often get you know hit with you know what about this pastor what about that pastor and you know would you want to argue with me on this sub- subject or argue with me on that subject and uh, you know whether I engage in that endeavor is not the issue um, I often walk away from conversations like that with um, just extended thoughts you know how do I think about this what is the doctrine and the Word of God say about this or that, and you I can catch myself sometimes running away and just almost getting into a moment or or, or a string of rationalism and the beauty about what we have is this right here it's just when you get sort of tongue tied or you know you get a brain cramp about a certain thought, just start reading your Bible, just go right back to scripture what. Does the Bible say? And just read it, and stop trying to argue from a place of rationalism, or stop trying to prove to yourself or to others, you know, this or that doctrine, uh, based on uh, your experiences or their experiences. I mean, you can, you know, pepper uh, your conversation with those individuals with such things, but um, at the end of the day, freedom is in the Word. It's the truth that sets us free. And we are not the authors of truth. Do you understand? This is the truth. We are not the authors of truth. And so we're not really commissioned to argue even from our own perspective and to rationalize, even upon doctrine. The best course of action always for ourselves and when engaging with others is just go to the Word. Find it in the Word. It's there somewhere. And be diligent to find it in the word. And if you or your, whoever you're engaging with um, isn't convinced, then you want, it, you want a little cue, you want, you want some little wisdom, first thing, you're not going to be able to do it with your rationalism. Do you understand? It's got, you're just going to bark up some tree and it's going to become frustrating for both of you and possibly do more damage than good. So if you or someone else is being stubborn, there's, there's where you go. Amen? All right. On that note, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish, you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Well, that's just a packed passage, isn't it not? And so we noted three facets of divine wisdom in this passage. I'll summarize them from Thursday's lesson up here on the board. Wisdom on grace itself, from 2 Corinthians 12, 9-11, verse 9 gives us the greater the weakness, the brighter the grace. The greater the weakness, the brighter the grace. In other words, if our arrogance is out of the way, if we understand our weakness, then grace can shine through. Verse 10, perspective is everything, so much so that we learn to embrace our weakness, to embrace the very topic, if you were, the concept of weakness, that's perspective, And then verse eleven says, "Remember where we've come from." Paul said, "I'm a nobody. (laughs) I mean, I am what I am by the grace of God, and I I I labored as unto the Lord by grace alone." And so we have to remember where we've come from in humility, because the flesh has a really bad habit of taking um, credit for things. We make it so far in the spiritual life, and then we look back, and instead of saying thank you, Lord, we say. Hey, not bad, right? And that's the start of our downfall. And we ratchet back a few pegs, and we go forward, and we ratchet back, and we go forward. we got to remember where we come from. Life would be a lot easier. Last Sunday, the Spirit spent a fair amount of time with us, emphasizing the fact that even though our enemies will sow doubts, we cannot quit on God. He won't let us. That's the whole point. That was the emphasis of last Sunday, uh, Sunday's message was, we cannot quit on God because He won't let us. Um, here's some thoughts on that, living out God's grace. Being born again and becoming a fruit-bearing tree, Allah Matthew 7, 18, is a permanent grace gift. It's a permanent grace gift. You, don't, you can't lose it because God's the one who put it there. So being born again and becoming a fruit-bearing tree which is what the new creature actually is. It can only bear good fruit. You also have a bad tree that you're sort of shacked up with or shackled to, which is your body um, that bears bad fruit, your flesh. But you are to identify with the good fruit-bearing tree, which is your new self, your new creature. And that's what you get when you're born again. And that is a permanent grace gift. And as Jesus himself said in Matthew 7:18, as a reference point, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And that's just divine perspective. And I was reflecting on this. um, Think about this as we synthesize some of this. God cannot be tempted. God cannot be tempted. God cannot be overpowered. So says scripture. To suppose then his grace can or will fail for example, that you can quit, is to suppose that you are more powerful than the God of the universe. That's what you're proposing. If you propose that you can quit on God's grace, that you can somehow negate being born again or negate the effects of being a new, being made a new creature, is to say you can overpower God the God of the universe, which is folly, of course. So for the sake of perspective on the idea of not quitting, temptation and even faltering for a time is not the same thing as quitting. We call that stumbling. A good example of that is Job. But the principle is true for all of us, that temptation and even faltering for a time is not the same thing as quitting. We might call that stumbling. One area that humans tend to struggle with, and this came up in our lessons this past week, one area that we tend to struggle with the most is in the area of forgiveness. I mean, raise your hand if you've never been sinned against. Raise your hand if you've never sinned against anyone. Why do you still love each other? Why do you still fellowship together? I mean, everybody in here, I'm not being a wise guy, but I'm looking around literally, everyone in here has offended me or sinned against me personally and vice versa probably and you could probably say the same thing about each other so what are you doing sticking together like this how does that unity in other words persist by the grace of God (laughs) that's how so one area that humans tend to struggle with nonetheless is in the area of forgiveness And Satan knows this, and your enemies know this, which is why, and I was talking to DJ before class, he's constantly trying to divide us. He's constantly trying to uh, fracture the unity in the faith. I see it all the time. Probably, I would argue, uh, from my perspective and from the gift of discernment that I'm given with this particular spiritual gift, I see it probably even more than you do. In all the little subtle ways that he uses to try to fracture you to take you away. I'm constantly on guard with how he goes about doing that thing. And it's usually, frankly, other people. It's usually other people and thankful because of the nature of our our church here and the unity, the tight we have a very tight church here, believe it or not. It tends to be from without. That's what I tend to see is People from outside of the church coming in and drawing people away from the body. That's what I see. And so I, I, I tend to warn all of you. I, I do it in my own way, uh, an individual, uh, on an individual basis, just to sort of say, hey, listen, uh, keep your eye on this or keep your eye on that, because from my perspective, it seems like you're being dragged away and you don't even know it yet. Nonetheless... One area that humans tend to struggle with the most is in the area of forgiveness. And as we read the following passage, keep in mind the sphere in which forgiveness exists. Forgiveness is not just an, you know, like when you're a little kid, mom says, forgive your little sister, I forgive you. And it's not genuine, but it's like this act, right? And it's like, okay, do I get to watch cartoons if I say I forgive him? Yes. Okay, I forgive him. God sees the heart. And so forgiveness is a heart issue. You can forgive someone and never say a word to them for the rest of your life. Some of you have had to do that. Maybe the person you've had to forgive you, they don't want to see you anymore. Or maybe the person you've had to forgive isn't alive anymore. But as as the Bible tells us, forgiveness is really about us. So as we read the following passage, keep in mind the sphere in which forgiveness exists. And listen to how Paul prefaces the subject of forgiveness with heartfelt love. Go to Ephesians 4.25. Ephesians 4.25. See, Paul was always after the unity of the faith. He's the one who coined the phrase, after all. He wanted there to be unity in the body. Why? Because he knows that we're going to mess up and we're going we're to um, sin against each other. And our natural tendency is to not forgive. And when you you don't forgive each other, there's a fracture now. There's always something there. Ephesians 4.25. And so he was constantly trying to say to the churches, listen, behold the unity. uh, Hold it as precious and, and, and keep it. Therefore, verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, see, that's a big deal. I mean, a lot of people aren't even honest with each other. Speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. If you're angry, approach someone. If you've sinned against someone, confess your sin to them and ask for forgiveness. Why? So that this whole thing can be put aside. The longer it goes, the the, the bigger the chasm, the the larger the, you know, every day is like a hammer, you know, with an old wedge uh, that you would use to split wood. It's like a hammer, and every day is just another whack on that wedge, and it fractures and fractures and fractures the body. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because you're going to give the devil an opportunity if you do. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, verse 28, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then here's our point. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. What? Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And do you think that God said, okay, I'll forgive him, like a little kid? Or did he really forgive you? Do you think God just put on an act, sent his son to the cross for the sake of forgiveness? And then he was like, okay, you're you satisfied. Whoever he's talking to, you know what I mean? Himself, I guess, is justice. He didn't do that. Why? Because God is love. And in that same sphere of love is forgiveness. Love wants to forgive. That's the point. We'll get to that in a little bit more here, up here on the board. Let's walk this walk here forgiveness a forgiving heart is a godly one how do we know that because god forgive god forgives us right so a forgiving heart is a godly one it's impossible impossible to fellowship with another person if we persist in unforgiveness imagine if god's forgiveness were incomplete how would we ever fellowship with him for all of eternity just think about that it's impossible for you to fellowship with another person if you're holding a grudge against them, if you haven't forgiven them in your heart. Something is going to be missing. There's n- the purity that should be there isn't there. And then you just extend that. Imagine if God's forgiveness were incomplete like, like yours are, is oftentimes. What would heaven be like? How would we fellowship with him? There would always be something hanging over us, right? This is the kind of wisdom the Spirit's been trying to impart to our souls as of late. reflect some more, and I alluded to this earlier, the very basis of our salvation, just think about this, the very basis of our salvation is forgiveness." Romans 3:23 to 24 appear in the board. "For we are for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means we've all sinned, we have all need His forgiveness, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So the very basis of our salvation is forgiveness. So we might say, rightly, that the Lord God is the ultimate forgiver. Is that fair to say? Of course. He's the ultimate forgiver. And you know what else He is? You ready? Let us synthesize this. He, the Bible says that he is also love itself. So on one hand, he's the ultimate forgiver. On the other hand, he's also love itself. That's the same sphere. The very essence of God, we might as well toss them into the same bucket. So what we have is an intrinsic connection between love and forgiveness. They're in the same ball of wax, so to speak. What you quickly realize with that perspective is the following up here on the board. To place yourself outside of the sphere of forgiveness is to remove yourself from the sphere of love for they are one and the same. Again, to place yourself outside of the sphere of forgiveness is to remove yourself from the sphere of love for they are one and the same. A forgiving heart is a loving heart. A loving heart is a forgiving heart. So says the Bible. How do we know? Because God is those things. I hope that makes sense to you. Go to Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. Why would we have to do that? Because we're all ridiculous. Today it's you, tomorrow it's me, and then vice versa. So bearing with one another, and what? Forgiving each other forgiving each other. Why? Because that's what love does. That's what love is motivated to do. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then, of course, look at verse 14. Isn't it obvious? Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's right. That's how you arrive at love. If you don't forgive, you exit the very sphere of love, you've, you're sort of on the outside looking in, you're saying, I, I want to love, I want to be in love, I want to be loved, I want to be in the sphere of love, then you need to forgive. Starting with some of you yourselves, some of you are riddled with, w- with guilt that should not be there. And so you're not even, you don't even forgive yourselves, never mind everyone else. And that's why your life is lacking, The thing you want the most. I mean, let's face it, folks. The greatest gift of all is love. Amen? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's what everybody wants, just to love and be loved. By God, of course, for starters. But when that thing begins enveloping your life and the life of others and you begin to sense a whole unity... In the sphere of God's love, then life becomes even grander. Who doesn't want that, even in time? But here's the deal, and I apologize about that. I don't know what happened with the font. I think it was a last-minute addition. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Because love brings people together. So the sphere of love, as I like to call it. Unity suffers when unforgiveness persists. Peace is fleeting, and we distance ourselves from love, grieving the Spirit. This is not what the Spirit wants. That's why it says do not grieve the Spirit. Unity suffers when unforgiveness persists. Peace is fleeting, and we distance ourselves from love, grieving the Spirit. Look at verse 15. Let the peace, Colossians 3.15, So, love is the perfect bond of unity. And then he continues, "...let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God." Do you see what Paul is saying here? Do you see what he's trying to build up? He's not saying, Like the strict parent, forgive your sister for being this thing. Okay, I'll do it. He's saying, no, I want you to love. I want you to find your way to the very sphere of love. And when you're there, you're going to want to forgive. Why? Because you hold precious the unity of the faith, the body of Christ even. You're not um, compelled, in other words, by even the commands of God. We know the commands exist. We are compelled by our own love for each other. And Jesus Christ said, how is everybody going to know that you're my disciples? By your love for one another. So I hope you see the intrinsic connection between forgiveness, love, and even peace. As a corollary to what the Spirit's already stated up here on the board, again, if you lack forgiveness in your heart, you lack peace. If you lack forgiveness in your heart, you lack peace. And you know who loves this? Satan loves this. He loves it. He wants you to be an unforgiving person. Why? Because then you lack peace. And when, I don't know about you, but my experience in my own life and with others, when you lack peace, what do you do? You go out, you ready? Since you're not getting it in the Word, Let the word of Christ richly dwell you. Since you're not getting it there, you go outside. And that void, that vacuum that exists in your soul, you fill with things that Satan gives you. All kinds of ways to do that. Pick Pick your poison. Pick your poison, literally or figuratively. Because that's what's out there. And it's all poisonous. And Satan loves it. And he looks at, what did the Bible just say? It said, don't give Satan what? The opportunity. When you're unforgiving, you're basically opening up a door and saying, Satan, come on in. I've got no peace in here. Fill it with some, I don't know, pick your poison. And some of you are like, yeah, because every time that happens to me, I always turn to this. And every time it happens to me, I turn to that. Satan loves it because you've just given him the opportunity to enter into your life, to have some level of power or control over you, which he has no right to. So Satan loves this. Some of you hearing my voice right now lack peace because you carry the burden of unforgiveness around your neck. It's not a yoke the Lord has given you. So take it off and abide in the one who said, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Take it off. Unforgiveness, horrible yoke. Who put it there? You did. You did. Here's the truth. We got this from Matthew 18, 21 to 35, which said, you know, how many times I have to forgive? Jesus answered, a whole lot. Always, in other words. Satan despises forgiveness. I just gave you some reasons from Scripture why. He despises forgiveness. Why? Because forgiveness unifies. Unforgiveness divides. It's that simple. So Satan despises forgiveness. It's one of the reasons why he has rejected God's salvation himself. In the realm of spiritual death, there is no notion of forgiveness. The only thing we have um, in the realm of spiritual death is... Akin to creature credit. Well, you've wronged me, so I need some payback. I need restitution. You did this, so now I deserve this. That's why I can't stand lawyers. I'm sorry if anybody in here is a lawyer. I mean, as a general rule today, especially in our own country, because everything's, everybody's got to pay for it. Whatever happened to accidents? All right, I'm going to stop there. (laughs) Because I'm like thinking, I'm getting angry, right? Because it's like everything's. What a, what a, why can't it just be an accident? I forgive you. You ran over my dandelions. I'm not going to call Bob Levine. <laughs> right? I feel injured. You've injured me, my, my, my pet dandelion. See, I don't have any kids, and these are my kids, you see? And you ran them over. That's unbelievable. Whatever happened, it just it happened. I forgive you. In the realm of spiritual death, there is no notion of forgiveness. There's always some paying back. And what did the Bible say? We said this, We saw this last week. Do not pay, repay evil for evil. Actually, that was in the blog. Do not pay back evil for evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. What's good? To forgive. And the last point on the board, a forgiving heart is a godly heart, something hate, Satan hates. John 8, 44. So, if you're struggling with forgiveness, here's some food for thought. Forgot how to love? Remember the cross. There's a reason why we have Romans 8 1. There's no condemnation in Christ. Why? Because you've been forgiven. How? The cross. What motivated the cross? Love. Forgot how to love? What about in your own life? Struggling with uh, forgiveness? Think about the cross. Think about how much you've been forgiven. And think about how asinine it is not to forgive your neighbor. It's unbelievable. It's the, you know, Jesus spoke parables about it. And it's not much more graphic than this in the Bible, Isaiah 53:5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And we're going to complain about our petunias? Are you serious? We're not going to forgive somebody because they said something harsh to us in a moment of whatever, you pick it. Rage or who knows? You're not going to forgive them? With everything that God has forgiven you, including the sin of what you're, how you're judging that person right now? Kind of ironic, right? Some of you allow your anger to go down with the sun... Allah Ephesians 4.26. The warning from Holy Scripture is that some people don't like to forgive others. We know that exists. That's why there's warnings in the Bible. Why? Why don't people like to forgive? I was thinking of one reason why, and this is completely fleshly. Probably because they feel they lose a sense of control. In other words, if you if you Forgive someone you just basically said openly in your own heart and then possibly to the other person who has wronged you, you're free to go. And the flesh is like, no, wait right here. I got a little control. And, they, you know, some people say, you know, that old saying, this is hanging over their head. People hold things over your head like your whole life, like guilt. You know what I'm saying? But if you forgive, that's gone. And so the flesh doesn't like forgiveness because it loses a sense of what they think is a sense of control. It's self-abuse. It's self-induced misery. But they're too arrogant to realize it, I guess. So one reason might be because they feel like they lose a sense of control. And that is really foolishness up here on the board, foolish hearts. Human beings are so deceived that they actually believe that holding a grudge is somehow holding another person in their grip that is a lie. You have done nothing but cause misery and a loss of peace in your own life. So foolish, aren't we? Holding grudges is, is literally, it's, it's gotta be right up there with one of the, given the frequency of our sinning against each other, it's gotta be one of the most popular reasons for lack of peace in people's lives. So and so wronged me, you know? Well, you wronged Jesus. You wronged God, and He forgives you, and you wronged Him way worse than this person supposedly wronged you. What's your problem? I want to control them. I want to have like little I want everybody in my life to have puppets. I've actually met people, I, I'm not I'm not gonna say some of you I know people, and I know that there's an actual strategy that people use. They want you to screw up with them. They give you, it's almost like they prompt you to screw up. Why? So that they can control you. With the end result of controlling you. Gotcha. They taunt you into it. Nobody has sick friends like I do? <laughs> Everybody's like, what is he talking about? Oh, I see it, trust me. Maybe these are the things I see that you don't. Know, I don't know. But I see human flesh doing that to other human flesh enticing someone into a relationship, wanting them to sin against them so that then they could put them over here and control them like a little puppet, and they use it. It's disgusting. It's despicable. It's grotesque. People do it to their own kids. It's grotesque. I want you to screw up. Here, let me, let me enable you to screw up for your whole life, and then you see, you'll never lose your need for me because I'm a control freak mother. You see what I'm getting at? I want you to keep screwing up so that I can control you because I'm sick. Yeah, I know. Even parents do it. It's grotesque. The whole thing is foolishness and it has no place in the sphere of God's love. A spiritual person will see right through all this garbage. And instead of losing sleep over it, they'll be praying for that person's unforgiving heart. Go to uh, Proverbs ten, twelve. Proverbs 10 verse 12. You know, you're really hating on somebody if you don't forgive them. You know that, right? Because love forgives. So what's the opposite of love? Hate. Hate, you're hating on someone when you don't forgive them. And because you're in the sphere of hatred, you suffer proverbs 10 12 hatred stirs up strife but what love covers all transgressions you want to get out of that funk you're in learn how to love learn how to forgive strife has a habit of ruining the peace of the one causing it so says the bible don't believe me look up here on the board second peter 2 19 says it very simple for what, by what a man is overcome, this, by this he is enslaved. By this you're enslaved. By what a man is overcome, if, if all you think about is how someone's wronged you, you have now become a slave to that thing. And when someone wrongs, all right, let me ask you a question. Is it a good feeling or a bad feeling when someone sins against you? It's a bad feeling. Who the heck likes that, right? Okay, so if that overcomes you, what's your status quo? Hard feelings. You suffer all day long, every day, in a pit of misery. You are now enslaved. And the Bible says, let it go and you'll be free. So you wonder why you're miserable. That's why. So if you're stirring up strife, say through unforgiveness, because if you are unforgiving towards, say, someone in the body, you're causing a division. We might call that stirring up strife even because now there's animosity, enmity within the body, stirring the pot. You know, as soon as things start get collectively better, I remember what you did, don't you forget. I see you're getting a little jolly over there. You're getting kind of happy. Let me remind you what you did to me 16 years ago. Or 16 minutes ago. Why should it take even 16 minutes to forgive anybody? Humans are ridiculous. We like to stir the pot, though, don't we? We like to pretend we have control. And one of the reasons and one of the ways that we pretend we have control is through unforgiveness. But yet, when you're that person, you are the one that suffers. Guaranteed. Not kind of, not maybe. Guaranteed. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is what? Enslaved. You are guaranteed to suffer if you're that person, the unforgiving person. I was reflecting on this as well. Slaves to evil. Ugh. Because an unforgiving heart is an evil heart. There's nothing good in an unforgiving heart. There's nothing good about unforgiveness. Slaves to evil... When's the last time you met a person who's simultaneously stirring up strife and is themselves content and peaceful? Seriously. When's the, last per- when's the last time you met that person? you know the busybody or the one that's constantly judging everybody else, or the one that's constantly bringing up old sins and when's the last person when's the last time you met that person and then they're literally content and peaceful in their life? They're not because they're enslaved to evil. Maybe you're saying, "Oh man, that's me." Maybe I'm maybe that's why I'm always miserable. Maybe that's why I lack peace and contentment. Because I have an unforgiving heart. I stir the pot. I stir up strife. I've got tabs on everybody. Oh, wait a minute, you just wait right there. <laughs> Oh, yeah, pulled a little card. Look at this. I've been keeping score. Seems you're a jackass. <laughs> right? Isn't that what we do? You know what I'm saying? You got a little picture of a donkey there. The whole nine yards. See? You're a donkey. You see it? It's unbelievable. And God's got a whole file cabinet on you. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's like, let's just open up this can of worms <laughs> And he pulls a file cabinet. The, cap, the file cabinet is like from over there to over there. sends right up. Right? When's the last time you met somebody that's actually happy and a busybody or an unforgiving person? They don't mix. It just doesn't happen. And a lot of this can happen even in with your own soul. He keeps bringing this back up for a reason. What if you're stirring up strife in your own soul? What if you come to class today and you're set free, and as soon as you step off the the threshold over there, your flesh is pouncing on you? Oh, no, 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 no. We're not going this freedom route. We're going to go the guilt and condemnation route. We're going to keep you stuck in dysfunction junction. Because I don't want you peaceful and content. Because I can't control you that way. So says your own flesh. And so some of you, because you're in a moment of weakness, will go back to your old ways. So a lot of this can happen in your own soul. So back to our instigating principle. Again, that's just foolishness. Foolish hearts. Human beings are so deceived that they actually believe that holding a grudge is somehow holding another person in their grip. And that is a lie. To cling to unforgiveness is to doubt the grace of God. Repeat that to yourselves. To cling to unforgiveness is to doubt the grace of God. In other words, if the Word of God says that if you forgive, you are blessed by grace through faith, then to doubt that is to doubt the grace of God itself. And you know what? Your enemies want you to doubt such grace. That's what they want. They want you to doubt that grace. That a gracious, forgiving, loving heart isn't the answer. They want you to believe that lie. That trying to control people through your flesh, through the devices of the flesh, is the way to go. What has that ever done for you? Some of you are so, I don't mean to be rude, but some of you are like really stupid. I'm serious. Like how long does it take for you to realize that that doesn't work? I mean, you're just gonna like literally live in, and I don't mean to be harsh, you know I couldn't think of a better word, but I'm thinking of myself too, because I'm stupid that way too, so. How long is it gonna take for you to figure it out? That that doesn't work? that an ungracious, unforgiving, unloving heart doesn't deliver you. How long is it going to take? Some of you are like, a really long time. Right? And that's what, the bodies, that's what your enemies want, because as long as they can keep you in that, that arena, they've got you. So here's what the Spirit's been saying to us up here on the board. Entertaining doubts. Cast it off immediately. If the Bible says forgive, then forgive. Find it in your heart somehow. Pray on it. Lord, give me the strength. Give me the strength to forgive this person. You know what they've done to me. You know it hurt a lot. Pray for it. Some of you don't even pray. Pray for it. Cast it off immediately. Wash your hands of it. For doubts are like a virus. The longer we play with a virus, the more likely we are to become infected by it. And I love this question. This goes all the way back from Tuesday. Doubts are not from God, so who are they from? Go to Ephesians 6.10. Ephesians 6.10. These kinds of doubts, doubting the grace of God, they're not from Him. So who are they from? It's a good question. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil. Oh, here we're getting, getting to some of the nitty gritty. Up here in the board, I'll borrow from McDonald again. The devil has various stratagems, discouragement, frustration, confusion, moral failure, and doctrinal error. He knows our weakest point, and guess what? He aims for it. If he cannot disable us by one method, he will try for another. Those are the schemes of the devil. One of the great ones, unforgiveness. Fiery darts. What do you think? Right when you're about ready to forgive somebody, all of a sudden this thought comes in your head. Do you really remember what they did to you? Do you really want to forgive that situation? Do you really, right? do you really want to let them off the hook? Do you want to cut the puppet strings? Yeah. The good news is that we have an intercessor in heaven. Go to Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. So we have all these schemes of the devil, a variety of them, countless. But we have someone interceding for us that is much more powerful than our enemies. Luke 22, 31 And He is called the Word. And oh, by the way, He became flesh. Yeah, that Word. Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that you, when once you have turned again... You see the confidence in our Lord? Do you see the confidence in our Lord? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers up here on the board. Now, this brings up a very important point, something that has been coming from the pulpit, I'd say, for a couple of years in a variety of ways, different colors, if you would. But it's the same message from the Spirit. The emphasis should not be placed on the potentiality of failure, but rather the effectiveness of the Lord's Prayer. He said, but I have prayed for you. Peter's imperfect faith did fail at times, but it was never fully eclipsed. He always turned again. And that goes back to the way we opened up, that you can't quit, in other words. One of the reasons is we have the Lord Jesus Christ himself praying for us, interceding for us. And his prayers work. That's the point. And that's why he had that confidence. You will turn again. You will repent. Just like all of you. You're going to go out probably today somehow, do something stupid, sin against somebody, sin against the Lord somehow, and then you'll repent. You'll confess it. You'll say, oh, I, I, I agree. That was ridiculousness. And the Lord is praying for you, rooting for you from the right hand of God. Is that not amazing? It's incredible. On Thursday, the Spirit made a deep point with us, worth pondering again. Remember, another word for salvation is deliverance. That's another theme that's been coming from the pulpit for a couple of years now, that, you know, to have that idea that, you know, salvation is just this one little pinprick in time on some, you know, grander scale, that, you know, salvation is just this gavel coming down on October 15th, 19 excuse me, in Bill's case, 1892. <laughs> and that's it. And that's it. And that's all we do. We look at salvation. We go, thank you, Lord. I guess, you know, it happened. I guess I'm going to hell. I'm good. No way, man. This, this, we get saved daily. We are delivered daily. That is the beauty of from faith to faith. It's not a, it's not a one-time thought even. That's not the point. You'd be missing the entire point of the gospel message even. That you are delivered from the very throes of spiritual death. That's not a one-time event. That's a life. The righteous man shall live by what? Faith. Who's even praying for your faith? Jesus Christ is. How do you think that happens? How do we have any confidence? Because Jesus Christ is praying for us personally. is interceding for us. It's unbelievable. That's why our faith doesn't fail. It's not because we want to not to fail. We put a foot down like that. I'm not going to fail. No, 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 no. (laughs) That's the flesh once again trying to step in. I got this, Jesus. Right? I got this one. No, you don't. You moron. I save myself daily. Right? I just thought of Gonzo. Anybody? Jesus' role in salvation in John 18, 9, part B, of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Do you see the very personal nature of what he's saying? You're mine, you're my sheep. I'm not going to lose you. I'm like the, the awesome, perfect, great shepherd. I don't lose my sheep. I count you all. Throughout Scripture, Jesus is depicted as having a very active role in our salvation, both in the gospel call. He said, "My sheep hear my voice in John 10:27 and daily. I ask on their behalf, John 17. His entire prayer was, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I'm going to be here praying for them. I pray on their behalf. I ask on their behalf that they be kept from the evil one. And as he said to Peter, I'm praying that you don't lose your faith. Why does Jesus play such a big role in our salvation? Well, I mean, He loves us. That's why. I I, I, I want you all to cling to that. That's a very important thing. He didn't have... You, somebody say, But he also had a duty because the Lord, you know, and you're the stiff kind of person, the stiff theological theological bent person. He also had a duty because God the Father had a plan. And he sent, you know, he's the author and perfecter of the plan, you know, this whole thing. And uh, um, he sent the, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Jesus Christ had to do it because that was the, God's will. That exists, yeah. Of course that exists. But... I think you're missing the point. The point is that he said, I lay down my life on my own initiative. I want to do this. I'm glad he gave me the, the opportunity. I know the Father's will. He's also the one who said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it, thy will be done, though. Just saying. It's getting tough down here. For a joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why? Because he wanted to. Because he loves you. Do you understand? His motivation, you need to think about salvation in terms of love. Not some forensics. Not some gavel that came down on October fifteenth, 1892. He saves us daily. He's praying for us. He intercedes for it. No, by the way, so does God, the Holy Spirit. We were able to walk this walk because... Grace that's motivated by love enables us to. For by grace through faith. How about that? Sound familiar? That's how we persist, that's how we don't fail. So, why did he play such a big role in our salvation? Because he loves us. That's why. And he didn't just love us here. He loves us. Love endures. This intercession of His is yet another form of grace. As the Spirit's been pointing out, our enemies hate grace. And, oh, by the way, your flesh is one of your enemies, so it hates the idea of grace. It'll try to lie to you. They hate it so much that they'll actually try to redefine it to us. They literally, our enemies have no scruples. You realize that. They will hijack every possible good word or thought. We're supposed to hold every thought captive to Christ, right? They will try to captivate words, steal them out of our arsenal, redefine them. The big one, grace. Love as well. What is love? What is grace? So our enemies hate grace so much they have the audacity to redefine it to us they want you to think that grace has strings attached to it why because if they can pervert grace it stands the reason that they have then perverted the root of it namely love and remember this every one of our enemies you ready is a selfish lover. Every one of our enemies is a selfish lover. I want you to dwell on that today. Every single one of our enemies is a selfish lover. If they can get you to doubt God's love for you, they've got you by the nose. And then they can lord over you with their own selfish love. If if your enemies can get you to doubt God's love for you, it's at that point they can lord over you with their own selfish love. They can't control you if you understand and abide in God's love. So they lie to you. They say grace isn't what you think it is. It's this other thing. And they propose a perversion of it. And since grace is perverted, therefore the root of it is perverted love. Well, if grace is only this, then what about God's love? It must be different too. You see? Once they've got you there, they can lord over you with their own selfish love. Oh, and by the way, that's Satan. Satan. That's the world, and that's your own stinking flesh. It wants to lord over you. What do we learn about the word teshuka from Genesis? What is sin's desire? To lord over you. Our enemies are selfish lovers. This is what the Bible is profound. This is why the Bible is profoundly dogmatic on the very idea of love. God wants you to know His love while your enemies don't. It's that simple. God wants you to know His love. I mean, isn't that what it's going to be in heaven? We're not going to be preoccupied with this that or the other we're going to be in love we're going to be enraptured in love will there be practical you know walking around and fellowshipping yeah but we're always going to be fellowshipping in what? love with the Lord and with each other we're not going to try to control each other we're not going to go Hey, I know we're in heaven now and I know everything's cool. But remember when we were on earth and you did that one thing? Give me a crown. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? That's not going to happen. The ridiculousness that we see in time is not going to happen. So, God wants us and all of us to know His love. Your enemies don't. It's that simple. So, what do they do as we've learned this past week? Web of lies. Think about three enemies in this life, the world, the flesh and the devil. Lies from within, lies from without, oh, excuse me, from without, lies from within, and lies called evil spirits whispering in our ears. All kinds of lies. The apostle John, the so-called apostle of love, had a lot to say about this. Go to 1 John 2:15. Then I've got to pick a spot to close. I can't believe it's time. I got through half my notes, but that's okay. The Apostle John, the so-called Apostle of Love, had a lot to say about this topic. 1 John 2.15, and he didn't hold back. In, in terms of one's salvation, even, he made very firm statements, like he says here. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see the, um, I would call it the contradistinction, the distinction between the world and God, the sphere of the world's love, which is always selfish, motivated by self. Pick your enemy. Or God's love, which is the very sphere of love that includes things like we've studied this morning, like forgiveness. Unforgiving heart, misery, spiritual death, makes sense. Forgiving heart, sphere of love, freedom, truth, deliverance. Go to 1 John 3.1. 1 John 3.1. So John didn't make any bones about it. He just said, hey, listen, man, these two things are two different things. You love the world, you're missing the point. These are two different loves. One is selfless, revealed on a cross. One is selfish. Three one. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Hmm. Go to John 15.19 John 15, 19. John 15, 19. Again, the Apostle of Love had a lot to say on the topic. John 15, 19. He wrote this, of course. You got red letters there, right? So he's writing and recording what Jesus said. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Do you see again the distinction? If you're with the Godhead, if you're, if you're saved, the world's going to hate you. You can play games with the world and, and, you know, I guess fellowship with it for a time. But look at what Jesus said. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Get used to it. And hatred comes, you know, violence. I was having this discussion with, I can't remember who. Violence comes in all kinds of shades. The great violence that some of you um, tolerate in your own lives is hatred for Christ. That's the one that kills me. I think I'm going to end here. That's the one that I think um, is difficult to um, swallow for a lot of people, because what you have to remember is that if someone denounces Christ, they've blasphemed the spirit, um, that's not love. That person, in the very strictest sense, hates. Jesus Christ, doesn't want anything to do with him. And yet we spend inordinate amounts of time with people that are opposed to the very one who saved us. And that's why the Bible says, do not be a friend of the world. And so there's a very practical manifestation here as well that the Spirit wants to bring out that we're supposed to choose our friends wisely. Unless you're trying to evangelize someone, choose your friends wisely. If you're trying to evangelize them and you're spending inordinate amounts of time, you know, with a person who, frankly, doesn't want Jesus Christ, what are we doing here? You have to ask yourself, how are you spending your time then? Well, I go to church. Good for you then what? Then I spend all my time in the world. That doesn't make sense. Does the world love you? I'm serious. Does the world love you? No, no. You, I know what you, doctrinally it says. I know what the scripture says. I'm asking you to look inside your house. You don't have to nod your head. Some of you are like, yep, I'm so awesome. It loves me. I mean, it doesn't love me. No, I don't know what you're saying, right? If you are of the world, the world would love its own. So do the math. If the world loves you, then are you hanging out with the world? Are you of the world? Huh. Does the world love you? That's between you and the Lord. As we pondered, and I got, um, just give me a couple more minutes here, as we pondered this on Thursday evening, we received some practical perspective, and this is the kind of perspective that can save all of us a lot of heartache over time. Up here on the board, on this idea of a web of lies, the world will tell you that your enemies are those trying to thwart your flesh's best efforts to get ahead. There's a reason why some of you spend an inordinate amount of time in the world, friendly with the world, is because you're playing their game. You have something to offer the world. The world says, good, let's play. And you play. And you play this ungodly game with the world. And then you demonize people that try to say, hey, hold up, man. Do you realize you're frolicking with the demons? Do you realize your efforts right now are edifying the world? That you're not standing for Christ, you're standing for your flesh. And that's part of that redefinition that I was talking about earlier. All of a sudden, godly thinking and godly people become your enemies. And the next thing you know, you're hanging around with ungodly people that hate Christ. And then you wonder what happened to your own life. And while you're back into the pit of misery and malcontent. The world will tell you that your enemies are those trying to thwart your flesh's best efforts to get ahead. But that's just a lie. To entice you into a battle on the wrong playing field. And I really do encourage you. Find the blog. If you, don't, if you can't find the blog, I will send it to you. Okay? Take me out to the ball game. You should be able to find it though. Take me out to the ball game. The whole idea is to get you playing a win-and-lose battle on the wrong playing field. Because everybody in that game loses. The world system is always recruiting new players for their silly games. In fact, we might say, in keeping with the sports analogy, they have talent scouts. Oh, you're like, yeah, I'm like talent. You know that word? Oh, he's talent, or oh, she's talent. Well, the world has talent scouts, and they're looking for talent. For example, some of you are really good at certain things that are highly esteemed by the world. Maybe you're smart, or funny, or good-looking, or wealthy, or athletic, or whatever. Doesn't matter, you pick it. These are things that buy you a lot in the world economy. They buy you things. Credibility, street cred, presence, uh, reputation, things that, you know, have a say in the world. The temptation, of course, is to barter with the world using said talents. And the so-called talent scouts are always looking for fresh blood. So, do not be surprised if you you receive a bunch of attention from the same people that hate Jesus Christ. Do not be surprised if you receive a bunch of attention from the same people who hate Jesus Christ. Some of you need to be baffled with yourselves. I mean baffled, especially after a message like this morning. You spend more time being friends with those who reject Jesus Christ than you do with those of the faith. Why is that? I suppose for a multitude of reasons. Maybe you've realized that godly people could care less about idolizing you because of this or that talent. Again, maybe you've realized that godly people could care less about idolizing you because of this or that talent, maybe you've realized that the world will quote, "pay you handsomely for your friendship just because of your so-called talents." Or maybe you've found a way in which to refuse the authority of your God-given pastor. Maybe you say that guy's on cry. You don't know what he's talking about. He's just this opinionated jerk. I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. You're going to have to stand in a line. Because you're the one who suffers. I love you enough to be your enemy in the moment, to be disliked. I don't care. We don't have to be friends. In fact, for, in, in many cases, I'm glad we're not friends. Someone's like, wow, that was harsh. <laughs> we can be friendly, but, I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? I'm not aiming to be friends. I mean, friends are work. You understand? There are many reasons that only you can answer for yourself. But here's what I do know about this morning's lesson. I am the vessel God has ordained to deliver you the truth. But your enemies, the ones some of you spend inordinate time, amount of time with, frolicking with nonetheless, are enslaving you with lies. For this latter group is not seeking you, commendably go quickly to Galatians 4 16 and I'll close I promise there's a, in other words there's a lot of people in your life my friends my loved ones my family that are not seeking you commendably they want to be your friend for the wrong reason because you are manipulative because you are unloving because you are fleshly and you are playing their game And they see it, and you have certain something that they want that they can barter with you. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? They're not seeking you. They're not seeking you in love. They're not seeking to see you delivered, to see you set free. Just the opposite. They hate Christ, which means they do not have his heart. They don't love you, they are selfish lovers. Whatever they're doing with you, however they're enticing you, it's completely selfish, not selfless, like this. This is selflessness on full display. Out there, selfishness, and they are enslaving you by sucking you in. And they will use you up, chew you up, and spit you out. Well, at least they say they want to be my friend. You see? You just said you don't want to be anybody's friend. This will be some rumor now, right? This pastor, he's such a jerk. He don't want to be any of our friends. You hear what he said? You know what he said, Mildred? You You see the flesh? These people are not seeking you out of love. You are a tool for them. You are a stepping stone. And when your value to them dissipates and is gone, which it eventually will, they will cast you off like a dirty rag. Galatians 4.16 So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, they eagerly seek you. Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, And not only when I am present with you. I pray for you guys. All the time. Why? Because I seek you commendably. The love of God pursues you. The grace of God pursues you. That world out there? A viper. Carnivorous bee. What's that noise? You guys hear that? Is someone clicking? What is, it? is it you, Tom? Is it your knee? Oh, no problem. No, I don't think it was you. No, it was clicking. I don't know. It don't matter. I still love you all. Even though you're a bunch of flunkies, whoever it was over there. Right? They don't seek you, this is the point, and then I'll close. I swear. They're not seeking you commendably. they just remember the word selfish, lovers. You ready? Your enemies, all of them, including the one that you, your flesh, are selfish lovers. They seek you for their own purposes. They consume you. They enslave you with lies. And then they throw you out of the car, a moving vehicle, and say, next, Jesus Christ loves you so much. He's guaranteed a place for you in heaven. He's gone to prepare a place already. Who are we going to trust? Do you see it? Spend your time with Him. If it means you've got to forgive people, forgive them. Whatever that means in your life, spend your time with Him and stop being sucked into the world because they could care less about you. They are selfish lovers. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For this wonderful opportunity to study your word, to be washed over by it, to be set free, to continue to be delivered by it, Father. We just are so very grateful for your grace and your love. And we're also grateful, Father, for the opportunity to share said grace and love with others in our lives, that they might see truth and be set free as well. We just ask for traveling mercies as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen.